Jesus, thank you for all that you have done for us. Thank you for how you have provided for us in such a big way. We're so grateful for uh, the work that you've done and the, uh, the gifts that you've poured into our lives. We love you and we praise you in your name. Amen. All right, opening question. Uh, how many of you guys grew up in what could be called a cold climate? How many of you grew up in a cold climate? All right, uh, let's see some of these. Dan, where'd you grow up? Did you say Boston or Austin? Okay, yeah, Boston's cold. Austin is not. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> All right, Catalanos, how about you guys? Rochester, New York. So that's like go to New York and then just go up, 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 up. Is that how that works? All right, yeah. So you hit the Arctic Circle and then you're the, you've, you've arrived. All right, anybody else? All right, Denise, where'd you grow up? New York also, okay. The southern New York, though, that's like Miami Beach or like, like them, Arctic? Whoa, that's pretty cold. That's, yeah, all right, cool. That's legit. I saw a hand back there. Yeah, where'd you grow up? Iowa. I've been to Iowa when it is extremely cold. It is, yeah. All right, Stephanie? North Dakota. All right. They made a movie about North Dakota called Fargo. It looked really cold. I've never seen the movie, but I've seen the poster. It looks very frigid. Yeah, okay. Um, all right. So I did not grow up in a cold environment. I grew up here in Newbury Park, although as of this morning, 44 degrees, you can now tell stories to your kids about the, uh, the Arctic blast that you grew up with back in the day. Um, but I did, when I went to college, I went to Trinity International University in Deerfield, Illinois, so just a northern suburb of Chicago. I moved out there. Now, I, I love cold weather. I love the snow. We, we used to go to Mammoth when I was a kid. Like, I, I loved that. Um, but it's a different kind of cold when you get to those type of places. And I had some friends that were from Kenosha, Wisconsin. They came down to Trinity also. And uh, it's cold in Wisconsin, if you didn't know that. And I was talking with them about the weather. I won't say I was complaining, because I legitimately liked the cold weather, but I was talking to them about how cold the weather was. And they said, uh, they said this to me, and I thought it was a, kind of an interesting thought. Uh, they said, there's no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothing. So for those of you guys that grew up in that environment, is that true? Like you can pretty much handle just about any kind of weather as long as you have the right clothing to face that weather, whatever it is. And I thought that was kind of an interesting thing because, you know, you come from California and you don't have a true winter wardrobe. Like it just doesn't translate. You can wear three pairs of jeans. It doesn't work. Uh, it's just different. And so growing up in a warm weather environment, going to a cold weather environment, you learn very quickly uh, what good clothing is for what might seem like bad weather to many of us. Here's why I bring that up. Today we're going to be talking about hope. And I want to make the assertion that there's no such thing uh, as, a, as a hopeless Christian, just an improperly dressed one. Like every single follower of Jesus has hope if we put on the right clothing, if we gear ourselves up properly for the life that we're facing. Regardless of circumstance, regardless of what you're going through, there's no life that you as a Christian can live that can rob you of your hope if you are properly dressed for it. My goal for today as we're going through this, this message is uh, in the same way that it was awkward to go into a cold weather environment and try and learn how to dress for that, I realized that coming from a culture that does not have hope and giving our lives to Jesus, it's not fully ingrained in us how to be people of hope. We actually have to learn how to be people of hope. And so part of this message, one of my goals for this message is to learn how to be people of hope 
and to live our lives differently with that in mind. So we're going we're gonna to talk about this. And this has been, it's been kind of an interesting Advent series for me, to be totally honest. We're looking at four words. Uh, the last one will be Christmas Eve. We've done peace, today is hope, next Sunday is joy, and then love on Christmas Eve. Here's the thing, those words could very easily look like generic Christian-isms that just kind of fade into the background. But if you take a moment to look at what those words represent, you realize how ridiculously countercultural each one of them is. I mean, just walk through them for a moment. Would anybody ever, right now, describe our country and our culture as peaceful? Just throwing that out there. Would you, if you were to look at our culture from the outside, would you describe it as a peaceful culture? It's, it's not. And to be honest, it kind of crashes in on, on the church as well. We get caught up in the frantic nature of the world around us, and we get just as busy and just as full and just as anxious and just as scatterbrained and scatterhearted as the world around us does. So peace is not a descriptor of the world as we know it. The world would not be described as hopeful. There's some optimism, but what's crazy is that the optimism of today is even considered to be naive. If somebody genuinely has just the, the, the pattern belief that, you know, everything's just going to get better, largely our culture responds very cynically and says, well, based on what? There's no indication that things are going to get better. Zero right now. No indication that things are going to get better. So who are you to just think wow, things are going to get better. So optimistic people, like yours truly, tend to be dismissed by the broader culture because cynicism is the way of our culture. To believe that things are uh, going downhill or it's all going to be broken unless we X. That thing, people will look at that and just say, that is the hope. But ultimately, that's not possible. We find ourselves hopeless. When you look at joy, like joy just seems to be one of those things that just dims and dims and dims and dims in our culture. It's hard to find people that just beam from an inner sense of contentment and joy and the fullness of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Even within the church, we struggle in the joy category. And then with love, it just, you know, our, our culture has been described as an outrage culture. There's a lot of books about that right now. A hate culture, there are a lot of books about that right now. Those are the things that describe the, the culture at large, not a love culture. So those four words, the things that Jesus came to bring in his advent, do not describe the culture around us. And we find ourselves just running into the wall of, if we're going to find the truth in these words, it is going to be countercultural. The world's not going to help us get there. We have to find the path through Christ to understand what it means to be this way. So today we're going to be talking about hope. The primary passage that we're going to look at is going to be in Romans 5. And then we'll dance around a little bit, and then we'll wrap up with some things of what that means for us. But as we, as we look at this, I just want you to consider again how our world has been framed. We talked about this two weeks ago, and then again last week. With Advent, we're not just talking about the manger scene, although that is a huge element of it. We talk about the promise of the Messiah from Genesis 3.15 all the way through until Jesus was born into human flesh, and that, that represents God's promise and his fulfillment, and the birth of Jesus signifies not only 
that the Messiah came, but that God's promises are reliable. So the the coming of the Messiah, the advent, is huge in that sense, and then a, a second advent is built off of the first one. It says Jesus Christ has come, and he's coming again. And so now we live in this era between these two advents where Jesus came into humanity, he lived a perfect, sinless life, he died on the cross, he was raised from the dead, he ascended to heaven, and he sits now at the right hand of God. And from that moment until he comes again, that is the era that we live in. And that age, that's the instruction that the scripture gives us. How to live in this era is what we are being taught. And hope is not natural. If we just leave ourselves to our our own devices, we can be optimistic, but we'll talk in this message about why optimism and hope are two totally different things. But hope actually takes some work to develop as a a skill or as a trait that exists in us. And Romans 5 is going to help us understand that. So if you have your Bibles, go to Romans 5. We're going to be in verses 1 through 5. All right, so Paul writes, and he says this. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This was last week's message. The whole basis of the idea of peace is that we've been justified through faith. So what that means is that you in Christ have been declared righteous. When he looks at you, he's not continuing to judge you according to your own actions. He's judging you according to the actions of Christ. And that's the nature of justification is that because of Christ's work, you have been declared righteous. This is so huge and so important. We talk about it all the time. If you were to, if you're a follower of Jesus and you were to die today and go and stand before the Father, this is why we don't hold to a doctrine of purgatory that there would be a hundred years or a thousand years of sin that needs to get burned off. Because Jesus' declaration was, it is finished, not it's almost finished. It's, it is finished. So the work of Christ is complete and full and you have been justified through faith. And so now you are at peace with God. What that means is your soul doesn't have to war with God anymore. You can stand before God in your present skin and you can can pray and you can know that because of Jesus' finished work, I stand righteous before the king. Now I know our experience, it doesn't always mean I live righteously, But this has been declared over us. So at a core soul level, we are at peace with God. But Paul continues. So through him, that's through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So Paul's writing and he says, okay, I want you to understand this. Through Jesus, we've obtained access to a new standing. We stand in the grace of God. If you're a follower of Jesus, you live squarely in the grace of God. That is your residency. That's what you exist in. That is your identity. You are in the grace of God. But he says, through Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Okay, so here's the entry point to our understanding of hope. We rejoice... That just means joy actually coming out. So rejoicing is like celebrating, praising, exalting in hope. So our joy is full of hope in the glory of God. Now the glory of God is twofold. One is the future glory of God, the glory to be revealed. 
And we look forward to that glory and we can't wait to see God's glory fully and completely revealed to us. But as we learn from Paul in 2 Corinthians that it's, uh, it's glory to glory, that there is a sense of glory that has been put in us already. That's why we talk about the kingdom being already and not yet. It has been inaugurated and it will be fulfilled or consummated in the second coming of Christ. So there's a, a entry to the kingdom of God. So we're experiencing hope in the glory of God. We have this, this new way of being. Paul's establishing a posture for us. He's saying you, now that you've been justified, have hope in the glory of God. This glory thing, his presence, gives you hope for the future. Okay, but Paul's going to keep going. He's going to dig into this. He says more than that. He one-ups himself. I like that. More than that, verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, this is fascinating. Paul actually goes to the place of saying, more than rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God, we rejoice in our suffering. So he doesn't just leave our heads in the clouds, in the future, looking down the line, waiting for the full revelation of the glory of God. He brings it back to today and says, more than that, we rejoice today in our sufferings, the things that we're going through. Now, the commentators actually look at this and say, this goes beyond just suffering for uh, like persecution for your faith. And this is actually Paul talking about the suffering of just being a part of a broken world. Our sickness, our bodies breaking down, broken relationships, just the, the fullness of the sinfulness of the world. We can actually rejoice in our sufferings that exist here and now. And you think, how does that actually happen? And Paul's goal is to teach us that as followers of Jesus, Having eternity secure allows us to know that today we can approach today differently. We can rejoice in sufferings, and he gives us the because. Because knowing that suffering produces endurance. Suffering produces endurance. Now, endurance is one of those traits that we see throughout the scriptures kind of often, and it's it's something that might be hard for us to wrap our heads around. Our culture is not going the route of endurance. It's actually going the route of kind of like short bursts, just even culture. Like you think about America in the you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever. It was like coal miners in Pennsylvania doing the same job for 70 years and then retiring. Like that's just the, the picture of the work life back in those days. And now fast forward Average job is three and a half years. Average residence is two and a half years. Like those kinds of things, we just move so quickly. And that's the nature of the world that we're in. Technology is moving so fast. Money is moving so fast. Everything just feels to have, have sped up. And so endurance now takes on a different kind of feel. Has this sense of like, how do we actually endure as spiritual people having so many things thrown at us in life, how do we press into Jesus in light of the many things that are being thrown at us? I'm not saying that our understanding of endurance has changed. It's just we had a different framework for endurance in generations past. But now we're not trained for it. And so when we're called to endurance, it's, it's very unnatural for us. Um, Eugene Peterson calls the idea of an endurance, he calls it a long obedience in the same direction. Think about that phrase of just, of just plotting and setting a course to obey Jesus over the long haul of our lives, and it's sort of against the nature of our culture. We sat down, we had a big uh, calendar summit uh, this week in the office where we looked at, at the year ahead, uh, 2020, 
We're actually planning 2020. And um, both Kristen and I had micro panic attacks, putting things on the calendar anywhere after February, because we just kind of live month to month a little bit, you know, just kind of flying by the seat of our pants. She's more of a planner than I am, but I just like, I'm looking at this calendar get filled up and I'm like, who makes plans ahead of time? It freaked me out. So the idea of actually obeying over the long haul. So how does suffering produce endurance? The goal of the scriptures is never to get you out of suffering, but to teach you how to thrive in the midst of suffering. The things that you're going through that are a part of the broken world, our idol is comfort. We want to be comfortable. We want things to be easy. We want it to go smoothly. We want everything to work perfectly and line up correctly. And, and when it doesn't, we feel like there's something, there's something wrong. We're not built to suffer and to persevere and to endure through the difficulty that this world is going to bring. Paul is well aware of the difficulty, and he's trying to teach us how to suffer well, how to press through the difficulty of this world, because when we do that, it develops endurance. It teaches us for the next time. James says the same thing. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. You learn how to suffer better the next time when you walk through this one in obedience. It teaches you God is training you for life in this world. And he says this. He says, endurance produces character. I don't know what you think of when you think of character, but growing up in the Larson household, for me, character was a huge deal. Like, my parents didn't really care so much about athletic prowess, although my dad liked my baseball playing. Uh, they cared nothing about my grades at all, um, but they did care about character. Now, you educators probably connect character and grades somewhere down the line. My parents didn't get that far. At least my dad didn't. But they wanted to develop in us character. That was the objective. That was their measure of success was seeing uh, myself, my, my sister, and my brother that, that they were concerned in developing the inner man. My dad used, he gave us so many scriptures to memorize that dealt with the inner person. Uh, integrity and honesty and righteousness and, and wisdom and just working on, on who we are, Christ in us, like that kind of thing even going so far as to communicate, like the outer body's wasting away, but the inner man, that's what's being renewed day by day. This is what we focus on. This idea of character can, can be kind of elusive for us. But Paul's writing and he's saying, look, when you endure, it cultivates character, strength of Eunice, not Eunice like the name, U-N-E-S, like Eunice. It strengthens you to endure. When you endure, your person, your faith, your honesty, your integrity, your righteousness, your goodness, your mercy, those elements of who you are are strengthened by enduring through difficulty over a long period of time. This is the discipleship pathway. When you think about what God wants to do with us, he wants to teach us how to be godly. That word can be summed up in the idea of our character being forged through difficulty. And then Paul says, character produces hope. And this is the part that absolutely blew me away. See, I would have considered hope to be a base-level Christian virtue. Now, 
We don't really ascribe points and value systems to Christianity. You could, and it might be kind of fun, and we get little badges the further along we get, that kind of a thing. That's not the way that it works. But when you think of hope, I would frame it in the very earliest thing that we learn as a Christian is hope. Because so often, when we're told the gospel, it's, hey, do you know where you're going when you die? And somebody might say, I don't really know where I'm going when I die. And we say, well, let me tell you about heaven. And this message of Jesus is built on the hope of the future. And so we sort of think of hope as like, yeah, Christians basically have hope. That's, that's kind of what the gospel is built on is this hope. But Paul has a different perspective of hope. He's like, actually, let me tell you this. Hope is a character trait that requires maturity, that takes developing. Hope is produced when you suffer and you endure and you build character and then you live in hope. Here's why this was so revolutionary to me. I, it is, it's such a reality that we drift from hope. It's not our natural state to be hopeful. Our natural state is to let our eyes zero in on the things of this world. We don't see Jesus. We don't see the resurrection. We don't see eternity. We were talking about this when we went through 1 Corinthians 15. So critical to have our eyes aware of the resurrection, fixing our eyes on Jesus if we're going to live this life for him now. And when we lose sight of Jesus, our eyes drift to the things of this world. So I'm going to actually put a pin in Romans chapter 5, and we're going to talk about three problems that we have with hope, three reasons that so often we lose track of the hope that the Bible's trying to train us into, the clothes that it's trying to put on us to properly live this life. Why do we so often miss hope? So the first one is this. We convince ourselves that we don't need hope. And that's the first problem with hope is that we convince ourselves that we don't need hope. We live in a pretty comfortable community. Like it's pretty genuinely easy to, to live here in terms of like broader global realities. Southern California is kind of like the pinnacle of comfort. As an example from our own household, I, uh, our big problem for the week was when our third car broke down. Okay, just giving you that, like an idea. It was a challenge this weekend to figure out transportation because the third car in our household broke down. We have to clean out our fridge and throw away the moldy food that we didn't get to because we had enough food for the days that we ate on and we didn't get to the, uh, to the Brussels sprouts, ever. <laughs> we, have, we have issues that, that become major issues, but they're, sort of, they're, they're built out of our, our comfort, not necessarily built out of just this, this uh, hunger for Jesus and the future. And what's so crazy is how quickly that stuff just builds up and becomes the most important thing in front of our face. I have a friend that, um, he had a guy in his church, he's a pastor, he had a guy in his church, and the guy was frequently telling him, hey, we need to change facilities. They were in a rental facility, they were renting an old Lutheran church. He said, we got to change this, it stinks, it smells like old wet carpet, uh, the kids need a better place to do their thing, we need a better sound system. He's, he was just giving him the list of all the things that they need to do better. And so my friend decided to uh, ask him if he wanted to go on a trip to Sri Lanka to go do some ministry into these villages. And you're going to do it on motorbike because you can't get to these places by car. So you're going to ride from, from city to city and go church to church. And we'll minister to them, they'll minister to us, and we'll see what God's doing in this other part of the world. So this guy decides to go on this trip. 
And he goes over to Sri Lanka, riding around, seeing what God is doing in other parts of the world, uh, worshiping Jesus in tin sheds, uh, you know, 95 degree heat and 600% humidity kind of things, just seeing like the, the passion and the heartbeat of the people of God around the world. And then he comes back and in a year and a half, the guy has not mentioned the carpet once, the smell once, the kids ministry once. He's so passionate about Jesus and his gospel. Just this simple ability to lift his eyes off of the things that tend to distract us. See, we convince ourselves that we're actually doing pretty okay. Things are generally fine. I can sort of pay for things. I can sort of afford life. I can sort of get my relationships done. I can sort of get myself in shape. I can sort of do life. So our eyes drift from our desperate need of Jesus to the things of this world that we can take care of ourselves. I know I joked about it a couple weeks ago, but it's sort of the, the nature of being spiritual toddlers. Our, our three-year-old right now is in the, the phase of doing everything herself, everything herself. She wants to strap herself into her seatbelt. She wants to put on her boots. She wants to do all the things herself. And it's always wrong, every single time. 100% of the time, she gets the order wrong, the sequence wrong, whatever. She's learning. She's three. It's cute. It's funny until it's not, and it's exhausting. But <laughs> you can't stay that way. Like There's a, a development that God wants to take us on. He wants to grow us to be people that, that learn how to approach this life differently. Teaching us how to have hope is part of maturing us out of being toddlers that say, I can do it all myself, or to quote our daughters, I can do it all my very self. That picture is not the picture of maturity in Christ. Actually, learning how to put our hope in Jesus is growing in maturity. Okay, second thing, second struggle with hope is we think that hope equals optimism. I kind of talked about this a little bit. Uh, optimism is something very, very different than biblical hope. Optimism is kind of a personality trait that says that everything is going to be okay. I know I've joked about this before, but I personally will go into any meeting, any situation, any place with an incredibly positive view of how that particular thing is going to go. There are times where Kristen and I have had very hard meetings that we've had to go into, and I, we're talking about it, we're pre-gaming, and I say, we're going to say this, and they're going to say this, 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 and this, and it's going to be awesome, and it's going to be great, and she says, no, they're not going to say any of that stuff, they're going to say this, 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 and this, and she's the realist, and that's the, that's the conversation that we have going back and forth. Typically, she's right, but the point is, personality-wise, it's not hard for me to have a shiny view of the future or any given situation that's optimism. It's not based on anything except personality. It's just based on a, a, a way that we see the world. And one of the reasons that the world is so down on optimism right now is because it does feel incredibly naive. To just say that everything's going to be okay feels incredibly naive to the world. And the reality is, it is naive. If there's no basis for saying that it's all going to be fine, everything's going to go great, we're all going to be good, Life's going to rock, but there's no foundation for those statements, then they're empty. That's not biblical hope. Sometimes we get confused, and we think that spiritually we're just being optimistic, and we're just saying, look, it's all going to be fine in the end. But I want to take you through just a quick biblical survey, some things that are really important, uh, words that the Bible uses to describe hope, and you'll understand why that's different than optimism. First one is yakal. Uh, from the Old Testament, 
This was used when Noah was waiting for the water to recede. So God told him exactly what was going to happen. I'm going to flood the earth. You're going to build an ark. The water is going to recede. We'll start uh, fresh. Like that was kind of the nature of the conversation. And yakal is used while Noah is on the ark. He knows what's going to happen. The water is going to recede. But the word is used to describe that waiting period. That, that time between when you know what's going to happen and where you are at present. That word is described as hope in the old, and when we translate it to the English. So yakal is one of the words in Hebrew, and that's the framework that that's used in. Another one is called kava. Kava is related to the word kav, which means cord. And the idea here is when you pull a kav or a cord, like a rubber band, just picture a rubber band, and when you pull that rubber band back, there's a state of tension while you wait for that to be released, and then it snaps every time. Unless you have a stretchy rubber band, and then you just need to stretch farther for the example. But you've got this picture of a rubber band. Every time you release that, it snaps back into place. And that waiting, that tension, that eager anticipation of what should happen is called kava. And that's another word that's used for hope in the Old Testament. So those are two words that the Old Testament uses for hope. And then you see this shift. What? Before I shift. Frequently, the Old Testament prophets will use those two words Kavah and Yakal to describe the waiting for the Messiah, the promise, the longing, the anticipation, the tension. And they live into that place, frequently bringing the sense of, here's what's going to happen. These are the promises of God, but there's this like, this sense of, of tension while Israel is waiting for it to happen. They have some glimpses of why. They look back at Sinai, the exodus out of Egypt, they look back at the temple. They look back at God's presence filling the temple. They have key moments of their history that they can look back on as the basis for living in that hope and not just having no hope at all. But it's still, it's a different kind of hope. The New Testament takes this idea of hope and uses a Greek word, elpis, like Elvis, but with a P instead, elpis, and it has this different sense about it. It's this picture of eager anticipation, but it's based on what we have seen and experienced. So here's the, here's the usage of it. First Peter 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So here's how this word hope works. First of all, according to his great mercy... It's built on that. God's character. Based on God's character, we've been born again into a living hope. We know God's mercy. We've seen it. We've experienced it. We've felt it. It's been a part of our story. And based on that, we are born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Also based on the resurrection of Jesus. Peter was a witness to the resurrection. He can write in full confidence all of these things. We are born again to a living hope because the resurrection. We did this in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul saw it. He saw the risen Christ. Based on the resurrection, we can know and change everything about what we believe about the future because this is our story. Jesus raising from the grave. He is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's our story. So our hope, our eager anticipation, our expectant longing is based on the promise of the resurrection. In the same way that Jesus rose from the dead, every single one of us will rise 
in that same kind of body. That's our story. So these writers are writing and saying, actually, our hope now is built on Jesus and his first advent. God promised, there's this long tension, Genesis 3.15 to Matthew 1.1, and this picture of the whole timeline, waiting and waiting and looking and longing and waiting, and then, boom, Jesus enters humanity, and God's promises are fulfilled. Everything that God promised was satisfied in that moment of Jesus entering humanity and living a perfect, sinless life, dying the death that we should have died, and being raised to walk in the newness of life that he gifts to us freely. So our hope is built on that storyline. That's not optimism. It's different. Optimism is a gut level, I think it's going to be okay. Biblical hope is a confident, I know my story, and I get to wait for it. A couple of weeks ago, my dad preached. I thought he did a great job with this word picture, this story. He talked about he loved UCLA basketball, so he would tape the games back in the day, and he would watch the games, but only if they won. He didn't like watching them lose, all right? But he would watch an entire taped uh, UCLA basketball game knowing the outcome, so he didn't live through the game with the same anxieties of a person not knowing the outcome. He knew they were going to win, and he could enjoy all of the elements, the highs, the lows, being 10 point down, the fouls, whatever, because he knew the outcome. Some of you might think that ruins the entire experience, but here's the reality. Jesus has promised a future, and based on the fulfillment of past promises, We can confidently walk forward towards this promised future knowing the end game, knowing the outcome, and it changes the way that we live today, legitimately. So our our hope is not optimism because our hope is built on what has been done and what has been promised, not a what I think is going to happen because that's how I like to think. It's different. And it is not naive. It's different because it's based on the reality of the resurrection. Paul himself said, look, if the resurrection didn't happen, walk away. 100%, no doubt about it, there should be no Christianity under any circumstances if there was no resurrection. This this whole faith, this whole concept, the New Testament, it all is rubbish if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. But since he did, we live our entire lives differently because that guarantees the promise of the future. Third thing, third problem with hope, that we put our hope in the wrong things. Now, I realize how difficult it is to keep our hope on Jesus. I know I've mentioned this. Whenever we talk generosity, we talk about this. Part of the actual challenge of being human is that there are certain answers that are available to us. Here's an example. Uh, Our truck broke down. Andrew's truck broke down. Back end needs to be rebuilt. Differential, drive shaft, I don't know, whatever. $1,700. $1,700. The mechanic calls and says, $1,700 to fi- fix that whole thing. And so for us, in that situation, we're looking at it, and I mean, we could go lay hands on the truck and pray for healing, which isn't a bad idea. We should probably think of that before we put out the $1,700. But that, the idea of, of that is our, our world tends to, instead of going to that kind of place, we just think, okay, truck's broken, $1,700, mechanic fixes the truck. When I hand it to him, he will buy the parts, hire the guys, put the pieces together, make it work again, and we drive it off happily ever after. We have our truck back. $1,700 is now 
the thing that we need to get what we're trying to get. You could apply that to so many things, to rent and a mortgage, to bills that need to be paid, to medical issues. I have this surgery that needs to be done. There's this doctor that needs to do it. I have to go here and do that thing. It's everything. And so what happens is our eyes so quickly that, that maybe at one point are on Jesus and we're fixed on the resurrection and we're living it by faith and, and our world is there, the world just, just puts itself right in front of us and we, we drift right down to that thing. And now, I, look, I get, I get that it costs money to do life. I'm not saying that, that it's bad to like spend money to fix your car. What I'm saying is that in our posture, we go so quickly from being oriented towards Jesus and his future for us And then all of a sudden we become oriented about the things of today and our eyes drop down and we lose sight of what we truly need to put our hope in. And we put our hope in things like money. That's one example. We can put our hope in our our spouse. Honestly, one of the, the biggest challenges to a marriage is when we put our hope in our spouse to be our identity, uh, to satisfy our every need, to uh, to, to answer our prayers, to be the one that, uh, that helps us in our, our lows. Like we set on our spouse expectations that belong on Jesus and we put our hope in our spouse to satisfy us in a way that belongs to Jesus. And what ends up happening is our spouse is crushed under the weight of those expectations when those expectations should never have been on our spouse to begin with. They belong on Jesus. And so when our hope is misplaced, We have the tendency to crush the thing that we're putting that hope in because nobody can satisfy all of those things. Only Jesus can fully satisfy all of what we need as people. Now, here's what's crazy. That when we put our hope in Jesus to satisfy it, to meet our needs, to answer our prayers, to sustain our lives, it frees our spouse to bless us in ways that they can live up to. Because we're not looking to them for our identity, Jesus is giving us our identity. It frees our spouse up to freely bless and encourage and love and minister to in a way that she or he might not have been able to do if we were looking to them and saying, I need you to be my identity. To help me be the man that I need to be. And we can create very difficult situations. And so when we put our hope in the proper place, it actually lifts up those environments. There's a lot of ways that we can do this. We do this with our kids. We do this with our jobs. We put the the hope of our future on things. And in doing that, nothing can live up to those expectations. And we end up crushing those things or becoming incredibly discontent with our spouse or our kids or our job or whatever the thing is. And we find ourselves in this place Things have not lived up to the hope that we put in them. Only Jesus does. So misplaced misplaced hope is one of the things that actually causes us to lose sight of Jesus. We put it in the wrong place, then we find ourselves in in a deep hole. So just thinking back, let's go back to Romans 5 for a minute. If you guys are curious, you guys leaned against some light switches. You can flip those back on if you want. Everybody's looking around because it got real dark in here. I'm not about to show a movie. This isn't a more emotional moment. We're not getting close and personal here. Just lights went down. It's all right. Okay. So Paul says this. He says, hope, uh, well, let's go back. Character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
So Paul's sequence here is that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint because we have been given the love of God in the form of the Spirit of God. Explain that for just a minute. Paul says, I want you to understand that you having the Spirit of God is evidence of God's love with you every step of the way. So you are walking every day, every moment in the love of God. As a follower of Jesus, you're filled by the Holy Spirit. That is his sign of love to us. You think about it, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. We taught about this in 1 Corinthians, like, So often we look to that as a reason to pursue bodily purity, but it's so much more than that when you think of the fact that you are a temple of the Most High God. And Paul's saying that hope doesn't disappoint because the presence of God is in you. It goes with you everywhere you go. So there's no reason for you to doubt that hope because you have the love of God in you with you today. This is why I said there's no hopeless Christian, only Christians who aren't dressed properly for the life that they're living. See, hope is built into the very nature of the gospel. It's built into the very core of the gospel, that you have been justified by faith. You've been given peace with God. You have the love of God poured out on you in the person of the Holy Spirit. You carry God's love with you everywhere you go. So what is available to you at every moment of every day is the fullness of hope that God has to offer you. You have no basis as a follower of Jesus for being hopeless because hope is built into the core of the gospel. There's a a great line from a book that we've been reading called Scattered Servants by a guy named Alan Scott. Kind of wrap up with this. It says this. It says, The dream of God over your life is not that you become a believer and help out the local church. The dream of God over your life is that you come alive in his presence and bring life to every environment, spilling contagious hope into hurting humanity. God has entrusted believers with an assignment to lead the earth into life. Here's the thing with this this phrase that's so helpful to me. God hasn't just given us the ability to hope so that we can have in us a, a hopeful future. It does change our nature. It changes the way that we approach life. But there's something else. This world has no ability to have hope without Christ. What is the hope for the future of this world apart from Christ? I can confidently say there is none. There is no hope for this world apart from Jesus Christ. So the love and the peace and the joy and the hope that Christ came to bring, it dies with us unless we carry it into the world. You've been given hope so that you can be filled up with a hope and take it out into the world and spill it into the world, lavishing the world with a different perspective of how to live this life, of how to go about the business of being human. You have in you the life of God, and it's designed to go through you into the lives of people, and that's how this world will experience hope for the first time. It's the first time they will experience true hope is when they meet Jesus through you. 
There's a verse, uh, 1 Peter 3.15. It's so often used for apologetics. Apologetics, if you don't know what that is, it's like our defending the faith. And so often that for us, it means that we would have all the facts and figures lined up. We have the, the reasons that we can believe that Jesus was Savior. We have everything designed to kind of defend the faith from like an intellectual point of view. But I want to, and I'm not down on apologetics. I just want to actually read 1 Peter 3.15. I want you to see something that's a little bit different in this than maybe what we've used it for in the past. Peter writes this and he says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason. A lot of times we'll put a period right there, a defense for the reason, but this is what it says. To make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. The question they're asking is not, tell me about the facts of Christianity. They want to know, why do you have hope when I don't? You're going through the same stuff I'm going through. Your body hurts in the same way that my body hurts. Your kids are going the same foul direction that my kids are going. Your parents are struggling the same way that my parents are struggling. Why do you have hope and I don't? And Peter says, we need to be ready to give an answer to that question, the hope question. Here's the crazy thing. This is built on suffering. Look at verse 14. Go back one verse. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Why do you have hope? I would, I would hope that every one of us right now is starting to develop an answer to that question. And that's, that's maybe part one of this, is that in our minds, we would actually just be able to articulate the hope that is in us. But the second one is, part of our role right now as followers of Jesus is to learn how to put on the proper clothing of hope for this world. It's not natural. Right now, you might be sitting there thinking, I really do struggle in this area of hope. When I go through difficult things, I have the same anxieties that my coworkers have. I have the same fears that my siblings have. I'm dealing with these things really the same way that the world is, so they're not coming to me and asking, tell me about the hope that you have. And part of this is us learning how to put on the clothing for the world that we're in, putting on Christ, gearing ourselves up. And there are three huge areas. One, the gospel itself, the finished work of Jesus Christ. We've talked about this before. There's a, an author named Jerry Bridges that talks about preaching the gospel to yourself daily. We forget. We're forgetful people. We lose sight of the gospel. We need to be reminded of Christ's finished work, what he says about us, the identity that he's given us, what it means that he has died for us and that we've been raised to walk in the newness of life, all of that, we need to be reminded of the gospel. We're sons and daughters of the Most High God, adopted into his family. Second thing is the Holy Spirit. We need to seek out the Holy Spirit. If we're going to have hope in this life, it's going to come through the understanding that God's presence goes with us, that there's not a separation that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, a temple of the Most High God. Where you go, He goes. 
He is with you. And in that, you can start to live a different life knowing that you're not just on your own. It's not your authority. It's not your power. It's not your truth. Those things belong to God, and through the Holy Spirit, he will show his power. He will speak his truth. He will show his authority. Those are the things that we carry with us. And the third is the resurrection. And we start to understand this life through the lens of, I know the final score of this game. So I can watch the highs and the lows, the fouls, the out-of-bounds, the diving for the loose ball, knowing the end of the game. And if you have no idea about that metaphor, you know what the end is like. So you can go through this life, the sickness, the illness, the broken relationships, the challenges, the difficulties, the sin-clogged world that we're in, and you don't have to be afraid. It's different for us. I'm a... um, Facebook scroller. I'm not really a poster, but I'm a scroller, and there's a lot in there right now of people uh, pretty down on on California. A lot of uh, get out now while you can. Um, California is going to hell in a handbasket. I see that one quite a bit. Uh, there's just a lot of, uh, you know, that, that kind of a thing going around about our state. And here's kind of the, here's kind of the thing. If I could encourage you with one thing, uh, you know, just on a very practical note, unless you have to leave for work, you should not leave California. Because we have never been presented with a greater opportunity to spread contagious hope in a hurting world than where we are at right now when people cannot see a future for the place that we are. That's where the gospel shines the brightest. That's where contagious hope actually makes a huge impact. I know it's tempting. Idaho looks so good, you guys. It's cheaper. You can buy land, get an ATV, shoot guns, whatever. I don't know. But if we're talking gospel motivations, regardless of of where you stand politically. I'm not even making that. You could talk about any of a thousand different arenas of California. It's not even all political. It's just people say California is bankrupt, whatever. The point is you represent Christ in this place and we can bring legitimate biblical hope to a aching, hurting, broken place and it is primed for us. Ah, let me rephrase that. It is primed for Jesus to shine brightly in a broken place. I just want to, man, I want us to be a people that when we live our lives, it's not that we're going to be exempt from the suffering. We're going to go through the same stuff. But we're going to go through it in such a different way that the world's going to look at us and just say, so What? Two, two quick stories. I know I'm running a little long. Um, one from a, a guy that was in our 9 a.m. and another from a guy that came up to me right after our 9 a.m. was done. I'll start with Armando. Armando came up to me and he just said, hey, that was my story. 
He's like, all right. He said, I'm in finance, and things were just chaotic and crazy. I, it's like I didn't grow up a Christian at all, like Spanish Catholic, but, but not even that, really. I, just, I grew up totally outside of the church, and uh, things were getting nuts at work, like totally crazy, and there's this one guy that had peace when everybody else was losing their marbles. And he said, I said a different word than losing their marbles, but <laughs> he said, I went to that guy, and I said, what is different about you? And he said, dude, I believe in God. He changes me. And Armando was like, I want that. And he gave his life to Jesus. It's like the exact thing from 1 Peter 3. It's crazy. There's another one, John, sitting right there. I asked him if I could share a story in front of everybody. I asked him, and he said yes in front of everybody. <laughs> uh, John's story, he was an incredibly wealthy dude, finance, just making all kinds of money, doing all kinds of things. Big, big. Had that huge house in Lynn Ranch. This is how he told me the story. Huge house in Lynn Ranch, all the cars, all the stuff, tons of money, everything. It was going well. He was following Jesus. He was like, like everything was there. And then uh, he made a, a couple of uh, bad decisions and did some uh, things that he shouldn't have done, and he'll tell anybody the story. He's told me that too. Um, and lost it all. Everything. They had to move out of their house. They're in a small condo over by Amgen now. They're, you know, the cars are all gone. They're driving, you know, whatever. Just the whole, like the, it's like the movie, right? It's the classic story of the guy that had everything, and then it just went away. Everything. And he's, he told me this. We met at Pete's, and he was telling me the story, and he said, I, as it was all being stripped away, I was, I was finding Jesus more clearly than I have ever seen him the more stuff got stripped. And it was like sequential. Stuff was getting stripped away over time. And it, it got stripped and stripped and stripped. And every time something new would happen, I would find Jesus more clearly in that. As stuff got taken away, my peace increased exponentially. And my experience of pursuing Jesus was made richer and fuller than I had ever known before. And he was telling me this story. And the reason I tell you this story is John was telling me his story and I mean, it doesn't take much to get me to cry, but I was crying at Pete's. And I wanted to ask him, tell me about the hope that you have in you. I want more of that. How do I grow in hope like you have hope? I wanted to experience more of that kind of love and joy and peace and fullness of hope. I wanted it. Guys, that's the story that we carry when we endure through suffering produces character, and that character produces a different kind of hope, and it oozes out of us, and the world doesn't have it, and they want it. They may not know they want it, and they may not know how to ask the question, but they want it. So our job is to know that it's really cold out there, and we've got to dress properly and get out there in that world and show people how true hope really does change everything about who they are. Jesus, thank you for giving us this message of hope. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to share it and the, the privilege of being able to carry your name. I just pray that we would be people, Lord, that uh, have a defense for the hope, that we can, we can tell people so boldly and so confidently and so joyfully why you have changed the way that we go through these things in our broken world. Lord, we're so grateful for how you have made 
each one of us. You're writing our stories. You're doing incredible things. Now, Lord, keep growing us. Keep maturing us. Give us suffering opportunities so that we can grow and endure, so that we can grow in our character, and so that we can grow in hope. Lord, I know so often we pray for the suffering to be lifted, but I pray, Lord, for endurance for my brothers and sisters that are suffering right now. Would you help them to endure through those things and produce incredible godly character that creates such hope that this world can know that you are king. We love you, Jesus, and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.